Welcome to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspective series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema, culture, and society. So let's begin. This is Future Perspectives. Welcome to Future Perspectives. I'm Gabby here in the stunning Locarno to talk to one of the most important film publicists oh, important, in please. the world. Stop, stop, stop. Right yes, there. yes, yes. <laughs> Modest too, Lucius Barr. You specialise in promoting international distribution for films from many cultures. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to be honest, I need to learn lots from you and uh, understand all about what you do. So we've got time, haven't we? Absolutely. I look forward (laughs) to the next hour. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but from my research, your first job after college was with an international student exchange office. Yes. And then you were with the Deauville Festival of American Cinema. Yes, but the, the root system, number one, I was born in 49. Every one of my elementary school photographs looks like a UNICEF poster. You might imagine living in Brooklyn okay. in 1949. Born in Brooklyn, the kids from all over the ah, world. Ah, so were you were settling. born in Brooklyn. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. born in Brooklyn. In those days, people anchored in neighborhoods for generations. I had the same second grade teacher as my mother 29 years later. So there were people who had gone through generations in the name in the same neighborhood. In my case, too, before me. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that I later went into working with high school Red Cross projects and sister city program between the U in New York and our sister city Tokyo, exchanging students and bring, welcoming people back and forth. Yeah. Uh, there was a group of high school students in, who supported the work of the UN, who were ch- children of diplomats, who in the youth movement recognized that our parents after the war were still shell-shocked and weren't, right. alway, weren't always able to do their work. So children had to step up and kids had to step up and help their parents, support their parents, even just emotionally. Mm. But also, my senior year in high school, I was 16 years old, I was invited to be an intern at Link, the opening year of Lincoln Center, which is grooming for being a, an arts administrator. We, it was called Lincoln Center Scholarship. But that meant we spent a day with the managing director of the New York Philharmonic. What does it take to run an orchestra? Where do we keep the scores? Where do we keep the instruments? How do we set up a tour? What is a tour? We had nuts and bolts seminars and Saturdays after, with, with various components of the organization. But also that year, we helped organize the university, International University Choral Festival, 36 different singing groups from universities singing ancient and new songs from their home cultures. And they said, wow, this is really cool. You know, my, mm. my, I was working with a fellow who just left college, and I was just going into college, and I realized that this might be a career trajectory to the whole business of cultural exchange and meeting people and uh, yeah. things like this and, and, and knowing the origins of things. So. And did you always have a passion for film as well? I was always interested in film, and from high school we were sharing films. But in living in New York, I had high school friends who were very into film and mm. say, go home see this film by Alan René. And I was into sort of like cultural affairs student exchange. Right. You know. I'm definitely building a picture of you and how you have used all this interest and brought it into your well, work. Yeah, because my work with the Council on International Educational Exchange, which was a student exchange office based in Paris, was to send American students to Leningrad for language studies under the Soviet Union. It was a six-month period when they'd be highly competent students of Russian who'd go in for six months and they were aiming for diplomatic careers or academia. One was the son of a farmer in Nebraska who was dealing in Russian clients and had to polish up his Russian to get into a better place in his life. And then we stepped into 
film festivals. Uh, one of the film programs organized by that exchange office was with uh, Raymond Ballour in the fall doing a semester on Psycho. It was really good. At Sensier, he would examine the way Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's film, was yeah. put together frame by frame, and it would be a semester per showing of Psycho <laughs> in such close detail about how each shot added impact to the overall run of the show. And um, in the spring, it was Christian Metz, who was a semiologist and much more theoretical, intellectual person. But the, the, the students that came over for that program, one of them was uh, went on to work in Los Angeles and called me about five years later, three years later, to say, could you submit a film to the Deauville Festival? Ah. And I did. I learned that the Deauville Festival of American Cinema was mm -hmm. being held as a tourist event and okay. not as a cultural event. The opening ball of the Deauville Festival is also the closing ball of the racing season. And it was ah. initiative of the city to extend the tourist season by having some kind of event. What should we do? Well, let's have a film festival. So mm. I was the next day on the phone with John Springer in New York about organizing Elizabeth Taylor's uh, coming to the opening, uh, on the phone with Rita Hayworth's agent about whether she could come. That began my association with Deauville. At the event, some months later, it was my job to make announcements in English and French. So I said, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the diner following the screenings to your left, on you, in the ballroom to your left as you leave. Mm -hmm. um, it's my pleasure now to introduce our um, chair, member of our board, Pierre Salinger, who'd been the spokesperson for JFK, was head of ABC News, who in turn was there to introduce the European premiere of Star Wars. So while that film was running... As you say, I don't watch films. I went back and changed. <laughs> I went back and changed and went to host the dinner. And at the dinner, a man came up to me and said, I'm Gilles Jacob, the new director general of the Cannes Festival. We need someone like you in Cannes. They had 2,000 media, and no one in the press office spoke a word of English. Oh, the wow. press officer for the Cannes Festival in 1968 during the student riots had left in solidarity, and it was never replaced. So the person who took over the files didn't speak English, didn't know anyone she already didn't already know. She didn't get to learn how to, get, how to evaluate. What we gave was set eight levels of press accreditation, according to the most important, to the, the smallest monthly magazine in, in the, the smallest city of the world. But they all had their place in, in line for screenings. You know, Some mm -hmm. had got in on a rush line, and some had to wait, and some had no access except to request. And, and wait to see if we could give them a ticket. So in those management situations, I was able to sort out a lot of things. Goodness me, I need to kind of go back a little bit because I'm still thinking about you casually like name dropping Rita Hayworth, Doris Day, Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, it goes beyond the word icon, doesn't it? And I just can't help but wonder, have you ever been starstruck? I am starstruck occasionally and I'm really happy to meet people. I, I do sort of stutter when I meet someone who's a legend. But at the same time, I divide the whole of the world into people who who know how to work, people don't know how to work. Going to Cannes, for instance, I used to have a filming competition or two. Sometimes I had five, but sometimes they were with companies that I would embed with. I'd become part of their staff. I'd consult with their team. Mm. I worked with Discovery Channel for four years. I was part of the organization, but ex external, except I embedded with them as if I was staff when we were on the field and through the days and weeks that we were preparing the MIP and MIP, MIP TV Monte Carlo events. So I either embed or I bring my own ad hoc staff on for the period of the Cannes Festival. And what I learned to do in hiring people is just to look for people who know how to work. Mm. They don't have to have any skills. Uh, but they knew how to work. Even celebrities who know how to work and don't know how to work. So, for instance, one day he was asking Faye Dunaway, the photographer would like you to stand near the window for your portrait for the cover of our daily paper here in Locarno. And she said, I'm not going anywhere near that window. I said, okay, then let's stand over here. What would suit you? She mm -hmm. said, the light must come straight onto my face. So from that, we, we realized she wasn't prickly. She wasn't difficult. She just said, I can't do that. I'm not doing this. So let's do this, something else. And at the end, my favorite compliment was, as I put her into the car, she said, oh, thanks, Luce, you're a pro. 
So yeah. she recognised that we both knew how to work. It sounds to me as well that a lot of what you do, there's a there's a natural instinct because it's not like when you started off your career, it sounds like you were following in the footsteps of it. You were kind of learning on the job, right? And then building your team, developing the way the festivals work. In some sense, an architect. In some sense, an engineer. Yeah. How do we get yeah. this done? Yeah. Uh, and also the, the method is I teach my, te my team, if no one knows anything about what we're doing, I said, first thing, if anyone asks for anything, just say, oh, what a good idea. Let's see. Let's mm. see. Never begin by saying no. But, well, the client might say, can we have a pink elephant at breakfast tomorrow <laughs> for the conference? I said, well, let's find out. And as the Austrian proverb, uh, things left alone might more often than not take care of themselves. When the client learns it'll be $11,000 an hour, maybe they'll decide <laughs> not to have the, the pink yeah. elephant. But it's not our job to shut down anyone's dream. Back to Locarno. Yeah. When did you first start working at the film festival? 2011, I was here for okay. the 2011 festival. Enjoying your time working at Locarno, how have you seen it adapt and change? Adapt and change. Well, let me say that I first came to Locarno in in the 80s, for in the, in the 90s actually. In those days, there was a Grand Hotel, yes. which you might have heard is going I've to reopen. Oh, I didn't hear it was going to reopen. Uh, I heard yesterday that it's going to reopen in 2025. No one ah. knows whether that will be in time for the festival. but Because the Grand Hotel was where it all began, right, in, in 1946? Uh, yep, something like that. But mm. the point is that you cannot have a festival in a big city. The festival in Berlin works because there's a festival hub. Berlin is on the fence right now for me because there are places where people gather, there are watering holes. But the point of a festival is to come out of a screening and say, wow, what was that I just saw? And people across cultures, we're here for a common purpose, which is to mm. share each other's stories. You know. Mm. When did the door open for you with Locarno? Uh, in, I was working for um, Rotterdam for some years, and yep. Pierre, uh, Olivier, uh, Pierre, Olivier Pierre came to Rotterdam and said, we'd like you to work with us here in Locarno, uh, because he saw at Rotterdam, my job is to, uh, the core business of guest services and protocol is to make an ambassador of every guest. And my job is to make sure that everyone coming to Rotterdam feels that they've been part of the community, mm. and they feel a sense of common purpose, and we become something of a family. What I'm speaking yeah. about are, are with this, all these anecdotes is the bonding experiences with people of the industry, and people across culture but we're here for a common purpose, which is to mm. share each other's stories. You know. Mm. Back to Locarno. Yeah. I've got a quote from Harrison Ford who said he'd never seen anything like this. So in your eyes and ears, what makes Locarno Film Festival just so special? Because I, I'm hearing that a lot as I'm meeting people. It's this kind of like, there's a magic to Locarno. So what's the magic for you? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know what what Harrison Ford was turning, talking about. Maybe the the piazza, the screen, screening of the piazza. I, I would expect so. Yeah. The giant yeah. screening. I pulled the, the quote the from auto. the um, that that theater used to be two thousand, three thousand, four. It's now eight thousand seats. I know. In any case, the idea of having an outdoor screening and and risking yeah. the weather, which is risky in this part of the world, yeah, is something that the Locarno Festival has committed to. Yeah. Let's just go for it and see what happens. And the screen is absolutely gigantic, and like you said, it's now eight thousand capacity. Is there a talent, let's just say talent in particular, that you absolutely have loved working with and maybe you've worked with more than once that just, I know that there's the, the camaraderie and there's, there's probably lots of artists that you like. There, it, it depends. There are not many people, I mean, I've worked over the years with Isabella Rossellini and I see her around the neighbourhood 
and I just say hi. Don't some, don't, don't normally stop to chat, yeah. but we do every few years. And we're something like we went to school, the same school or something like that. We're this, around the same age, and I know her children. And I've worked in uh, projects at the Museum of Natural History where her father's films were shown. So it's like familial familial uh, relationship, but not mm-hmm. exactly or neighborly relationship, but not exactly friendship. Or, just more like enjoyment, like pleasure, like yeah. Exactly. Oh, I love working with that person. Working with that person. Yeah. No, I work with so many different people. I can't right. think of working with. I, I mentioned Gloria Swanson, but then yeah. I've worked with Stella and Skarsgård on a couple of projects for uh, the Norwegian Film Institute and the Swedish Film Institute in New York, promotions of films. And he, I count him as sort of a friend, but mm-hmm. that doesn't say we catch up every time he's in New York. Or Tilda Swinton, actually, this is good. When I was working with Derek Jarman's uh, Caravaggio, and he went to. Los, I was living in New York for the summer. He went to Los Angeles to spend uh, a week doing press for Caravaggio, and they stayed in the apartment I had left behind. <laughs> so Tilda Swinton's first visit to Los Angeles was in my apartment for a week, where my next door neighbor had been a light double for Gloria Graham, and she met uh, some aspects of old Hollywood on her very first time in Los Angeles. Wow! So now when Tilda and I see each other, we have this shared history going way back. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's really funny that there again, it's something like we're cousins or went to the same school or Joanna Hogg also was went with her at the same school. So these knitting together of people who, not that we're friends or we've worked together a lot, mm-hmm. but our paths have crossed. When you're promoting a film, actually, I'm curious, but you speak two languages, right? French and English. Yes. But then you deal with, uh, you know, the net is uh, cast pretty far. Well, yeah. So if it's a film that's not in one of your native tongues does that make it more challenging to not to at all no? because we're looking for the emotional tenor of the film every time out so the film in the Mayan language there was a film made in the Mayan language about six or eight years ago and it's a very simple story about a girl in a village loving a man who decides to leave and he doesn't tell her when he disappears one night and he, mm-hmm. she thought he was she was going to go with him the whole story is based on that. The, mm. the, the whole story of city mouse, country mouse is, is embedded in the idea that there's a better life in the city, but will it be better? Mm. You know? And there are many films that are an archetype, archetypical stories that resonate across cultures. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. I'm more interested in finding out what those resonances are and working with them than in understanding the meaning of the language. I mean, there have been cases where in one film, Japanese film, Eureka by Ayama Isunji, um, there was a moment when the word for other is in Japanese, people who are not your family, your schoolmates, or your workmates. And in Japanese society, if you're not family, schoolmate, or workmate, there's no social protocol for interaction. Mm. And it puts you at a bind when your neighbor's house falls down or your neighbor's wife has died and you don't know exactly what's appropriate to be said. And in the, in the dialogue of this film, there was a subtitle to be made in English and French, and to the parallels of the festival dialogue. So, you yeah. Have you seen international films grow in unexpected markets? You, you, or you're like surprised that you're like, oh, it performed really well in, in this territory. I wasn't expecting that. Is there anything that comes to mind uh, that you've worked on recently? Well, yeah. I mean, it, 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 one of the things that can is that we have the largest press corps and the largest like sledgehammer at the carnival coming down on the film, and either it will go up and hit the gong or it will go halfway up and come down again. So in, in some cases, uh, you find out right away with Johnny Toe's election, the most enthusiastic press was in Vienna and uh, Buenos Aires. <laughs> I said, ah. okay. <laughs> but that was about a father and son, a father mafioso and, and uh, taking over the, ba- the baton of power in Hong Kong and his son witnessing this violent life that his father is living and also coming into it as his own heritage, his own, his own future is likely to be this. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no mother depicted in the film. 
Mm. So the analysis from Austrian and Argentine critics was extremely psychoanalytic. And those are the two countries in the world where there's the highest rate of psychoanalysis in the population. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> you have things like this. Yeah. Another funny story. One day I was working with Pedro Almodovar. I was living in Los Angeles and working on women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, had been refused at Berlin, refused at Cannes, and we had our pr world premiere in the market at Cannes with 300 people. But in the, at that time, his fifth film, there were lots of distributors for his films, and people knew his work. Except the festival didn't recognize his work until then. When I got to Los Angeles, we were working on the Oscar campaign, and I got a call from Blockbuster. By the way, uh, uh, Law of Desire by Pedro Almodovar is the most lost or stolen video on the national chain of blockbuster videos. 600 stores. Lost or stolen? Lost or stolen is the same category. So mm. what does that mean? They were ordering 80 extra cassettes for, for 650. 80. This foreign language is only 2% of the collection. As you, as you may know, Blockbuster's business model was to anticipate the top 10 titles of the week because 90% mm. of their week-to-week -week sales were done, rentals were done in, with the top 10 titles of the week. So everyone would run in and say, let me have that Goldie Hawn film. Or, they wouldn't even know the title. Let me, where's the Schwarzenegger film? Right. And they'd want those titles, but not the foreign titles. So when I asked Blockbuster... Where does Pedro Almodovar do his best business? They called me back and they said, Mr. Bar, Pedro Almodovar does his best business in sales and rentals in Council Bluffs, Iowa. I said, okay, <laughs> that's a suburb of Omaha, a suburb of Omaha. And they said, what goes on there? We'll call you back. It seems that and there's... And did they? Yes, they said there's a mom and pop video. On one side, there are two monasteries. On the other side, there are three convents. And the monks and the nuns are crazy about Almodovar. <laughs> so there's constant traffic. <laughs> There's constant wow. traffic and constant demands. And at Venice last year, I finally got to tell the story to Pedro. I said, now, Pedro, next in the States, we must make a trip, a side trip to <laughs> Omaha and visit these monasteries. <laughs> I, pu I pulled this from a quote that you've already said in regards to uh, a suggestion to film producers, don't try to be universal. Right. So what did you mean by that? My favorite anecdote in this regard is Eric Romer, who was making films, as you may know, based in Paris, based on a certain society in Paris, intellectual society, and lots of talk, lots of introspection, lots of self-doubt. And his films are anchored in very micro-universe that is well-depicted psychologically. Mm. And uh, one of his producers one day said, Eric, you've made so many good films that have traveled. You should make a film built for the international market. You should make a film that will speak to the international market, maybe an international co-production, maybe shoot in New York or someplace else, London. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 my work is always and will always be about Paris and the people I know, the work, the life I know. And it will always be geared to make back its money in Paris. If it makes its money in the rest of suburbs, the rest of France, so much the better. International, I can't really be concerned because that's not my point of focus. But mm -hmm. my point of focus is getting the best work I can do on my turf. And that's why mm. I think his films work so well internationally. Mm. And I'm really a partisan of his thinking, of his way of thinking that you can't build what they used to call Euro pudding, like have the story Liliana Cavani, the story of French Francis of Assisi, played by Mickey Rourke. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was really right, the most, yeah. the, from the day it showed at Cat, it was the most embarrassingly incongruous. Uh, uh, casting and production, but it was geared to be uh, the other, one of my favorite books, by the way, if you can find it, it's called My Indecision is Final. Jake Eberts and Terry Eilert about the rise and fall of Goldcrest films where they were making revolution and they, they had Al Pacino and Natasha Kinski um, and they never put them together to see if they worked before the film. And then because, because we have these stars, we must have someone playing the general. So they hired Donald Sutherland, another high price uh, cameo almost. I'm not, I'm not sure cameo was a supporting actor, but suddenly the budget was ballooning and no one was overseeing 
the harmony between the components, and it didn't work at all as a film. Mm. Mm. So there are certain times when things get out of control because of the agenda of making them appeal internationally. A good yeah, Japanese right. actress uh, on the Ozu films is one of the great faces of cinema, but she doesn't have to be international to make those films work on an international basis. She's known to people who watch films of various cultures. So it's staying true to your art, basically, and not trying to think for the masses. Well, to take the most detailed uh, and authentic picture of life in your as you know it yeah, you know? yeah because if you start jigging it to be more international you can say people will be confused i once worked on a, a japanese film set in 16th century where the people said master kobayashi must leave the castle is burning come out with us now immediately bring your family not being japanese we didn't know whether kobayashi was a hero or a villain is this a good thing that his castle is burning or not so those are things that have to be solved for the international version of the film but that doesn't mean that anything else about that film riku by tishigahara was made to appeal to international audiences has there been any films that have not say been well received at a film festival but then have gone on to explode once they've been released many many well i mean especially at Cannes, where people are watching films on jet lag uh, i watched i remember la confidential people said okay what's next and then when it came out it was like brilliant fine wonderful uh adam mcgoyan is the sweet hereafter uh okay not his best effort next and when it came out of course people wow. said brilliant genius so, yeah so uh, we used to be showing films in New York, just the Thursday or Friday before Cannes, so that people would see the films off jet lag. Ah, clever. With uh, I heard one of some of my I didn't do this, but my, some of my friends showed David Mamet's Homicide in New York to eleven people, so they could have a few reviews and a few people feel they could watch the film carefully. So you must be one of the first people to watch a film then, if you're seeing it even before if it's a premiere at a film festival. Oh well, if I'm working on the film, yeah, I'm in, and most of the work I do these days is to see films in rough cut on Vimeo and comment on them before they lock the cut or say this is good, but it would be better if maybe there are three secrets four sequences, maybe you just cut one of these because it's too long. That film was uh, a film I worked on two years ago that was cut and won a prize after that. So it was really a feather in my cap. that the, Not because they cut that scene, but they, they, they were uh, tighter and more to the point than having th four separate stories, one of which was a little bit more dramatic than the other three. Mm. Or, or more... Um, more existential, let's say. There was a different character to the, th the one we cut. So anyway, there, there's never you're never sure, but if you ask my opinion, my training is just to give it. And I recently mm. saw a film, and I said, a friend sent me his film, and he said, I'm finished. I don't know if I have anything more to do. And I wrote back, I said, well, this film is totally incoherent. <laughs> you, it's supposed to be telling the story of this and this, but the first chapter dominates the rest of the film. And the second person who's introduced in the second chapter is not becoming... A part, a, a, comp a component that's supposed to be equal to the first. Yeah. And so uh, after that, he said, "Let's have a Skype meeting." So we had a Skype meeting yesterday. It was wonderful that he was able to ingest that and go on with the project as a promotional thing because he he can't afford to recut or re remix or do anything else. It's a it's a zero budget film. Mm. But um, this is the work I enjoy doing most because either people will understand what I'm saying and work with it. Um, or they'll get angry and say, I disagree. <laughs> the film yeah. is brilliant as it stands. And I say, fine. <laughs> and, and, and in that regard, the only thing I can say is, there's no one I can imagine showing this film to. 
because my work, my, my whole inspiration as a publicist, as a marketing person, is to say, wow, I can't wait to show this to so many friends. I want all my friends to see this film. Yeah. Or this is a great film. They should see this and this and this. And even, but even when I say that, La Promesse, the Dardenne brothers, as fine a film as has ever worked on. And, and people said, oh, go ahead, Lucius, pull my other leg. <laughs> you know, they don't have to trust me. I'm, the, I'm only promoting the film. So is my you... credibility is actually zero, which means I can say anything. <laughs> it well, doesn't matter. I mean, your job is really 360, isn't it? Because you're working with the actors of the film, you're working with the journalists, you're working with, like, with the filmmakers. Well, even before that, I'm looking inward with the filmmaker and outward to the market. What about film now in the digital age especially during pandemic and post pandemic in terms of your job it, was that sort of something that you didn't see coming or no it, my job continued your job continued. my job continued i mean the can there was a great debate inside the can market as to whether or not they should present in 2020 a virtual market mm. and they did mm. which taught many people that life goes on even if it's virtually and film goes on, but in a different the, the way? Sales agents at Cannes, for instance, there are many people who come to the Cannes market and they might have films in the, in the market, but they don't have films in the selection of the festival. So they come to Cannes to have meetings with people that they could otherwise meet without going to Cannes. And, and the meetings at Cannes are really just half hour now. This, this is another aspect of our marketing and of our whole uh, market and festival culture is that everything has been compressed. We used to have two hour lunches at Cannes and you'd mm -hmm. go out with your key clients for lunch and dinner and hang out. Uh, now everything is compressed to 45-minute lunches and yeah. half-hour meetings. Yeah. And but it takes so long to prepare and catch up and, and follow up, unpack those meetings, that you sit down for half an hour with a key client from a key territory, like your client from Japan who's bought two films a year from you, and you say, here's my new catalog. I have three new films, and let me show you clips. Bing, three minutes. Bing, two minutes, three minutes. And then would you like some Vimeos? And you send the Vimeo links after the festival, and you wait to hear back from them. And your job is like a farmer to let, let the seeds take root, but then also to make sure that you can get a quick answer. Irving Thalberg, long-time long head of MGM, said, the next best thing to yes is a quick no. <laughs> so if you're, not gonna, if you're not interested in this film, let me go on to the second buyer in your territory, or the third, or the fourth, yeah. or another. There are Normally, a sales agent won't even take on the film until they think of, hmm, who can I show this film to? Who will likely buy this film? Who are the people who I can imagine will respond if I, if I show this film? Mm. On the strategic planning and management of promotional campaigns for new films, you have to find the right story, the right essence uh, to be able to sell it. The emotional core. The emotional core. That's the key. That's sure, the... sure. Millie Lies Low is a New Zealand film about a woman who's just graduated architecture, has a prestigious internship in New York, and has a panic attack on the plane. It's a question of self-doubt. It's a question of impulsive behavior. She jumps off the plane and then regrets it and says, wait a minute, she yeah. can't afford to pay the new booking, and yeah. she has to hide as if she's in New York. She pretends she's in New York on virtual media, and, and her, she's in, in her hometown of Wellington. So, the so a sudden impulse turns her off her career path. So I speak about this. Everyone's had sudden impulses that suddenly yeah, are yeah. unintended consequences of sudden impulses. Yeah. So I took the whole of the presentation of that film to that le level. Let's talk about Locarno's industry program. It's called Locarno Pro. You're responsible for a masterclass reviewing case studies on ways to maximize the impact of communications from script to screen. Uh, and move public opinion from awareness to want to see. Can we elaborate on this a little bit? Oh, yeah. I, I, well, how do things get, vi get to be viral? Do you know? This is something we should all know. Viral, it goes three steps. One, you like, but you can like a thousand things a day, right? You're aware of a thousand things that you like, but then you have to share them. 
That's going from like to share is step number two. Mm. Step number three, why is it called social media? Because you never go viral until it starts conversation offline, like now. And when you send more people to the web, that begins the process over again. It should explode in the same way. And until it starts exploding because of the social component of the, comp of the process, you will never get to viral. So in a similar way, it's important to know that when we want to build from awareness, we're hoping to win over the choice of people who go to the movies twice or three times a month. The 18 to 24-year-olds who go to the movies 2.4 times a month mm. will sustain theatrical film. And if they don't, theatrical film in Japan... In 2004, we discovered that 95% of Japanese people between 18 and 30, that's their demographic cutoff, were watching 95% of their content, uh, audiovisual content, on handhelds and tablets. Mm, that doesn't surprise me. Not, uh, and it's going that way in every market. So... But at the same time, will that remaining 5% sustain theatrical release? And what is going on in theaters anyway? In New York right now, we only have blockbusters and big ticket, but giant screen things going on in theaters anyway. So the smaller mm -hmm. films, the more delicate, intimate uh, microfilms are not being shown in, the, in theatrical release in, in any case. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is to find a way to go forward with those films as well as there used to be uh, some years ago. I was showing a week of Norwegian film in New York, and I saw a couple that had been several screenings. I said, what prompted you to come to the screening? They said, we've always been rewarded by films at Lincoln Center. And secondly, we remember the days when there used to be more Scandinavian films on the screens of New York. Do you think as well, like, eventually... Because movies, especially since the pandemic, because they were closed down, they really took a hit, didn't they? But the, for me, there's a, a romance about going to a movie, to, you know, the movie theatre, to watch a movie versus putting on Netflix or another oh, streaming absolutely. platform. Unfortunately, many people today don't even know the experience of watching. I remember years ago when I was living in, in, uh, in my 20s, I saw Casablanca, which everyone has seen and everyone has seen before, but I saw it in the theater in a retrospective, and it was, when Ingrid Bergman entered the club, there was an audible gasp. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was an audible gasp in the audience, and it, when you have those moments of audible gasp, uh, uproarious laughter yeah. uh, or some other response. Uh, I was watching Full Metal Jacket at a Marine base in California <laughs> on a Friday wow. night full of Marines and there was a great gasp at the end of the film. Oh no. They, they, they was like, ha. Ah. <laughs> they were drained of all energy and I was amazed to see the crowd going out. Mm. In order to encourage more people to go back to cinemas, movie theatres what do you think the industry needs to do because just us talking about it is like a reminder isn't it of like things that you can't get from at home when you're watching it on your own or with a friend or a partner or whoever but like I think we are kind of forgetting about that well I think one of the things that the European Digital Cinema Forum was starting in the like 20, 15 years ago was to create to help build out digital cinema, digital projection in local cinemas that could be 50 to 7500 seats inside otherwise popular cafes or adjacent to cafes, restaurants lounges, bookstores so they could have some sense of destination so I think we have to really find a way to build more micro cinemas, mini cinemas, community cinemas. So there is a terrain where the size and shape of a theater, the film theater and the idea that people will say, oh, I won't see this film this week, but maybe if it's still, if it's still playing next week, I'll go see it. Yeah. And people in smaller cities around the country in, in America will wait to see, okay, the film is opening in New York today. It means it'll probably be here in, in Burlington, Vermont in six weeks or in, in Santa Barbara in six or eight weeks. So they'll wait for that film, but in, in, that, in that pace, people would be ready and aware, and they jump because they wanted to see a film, 
they say, oh, I want to see that film, but it's not possible this week. Kids are in school and I can't go out. But uh, they'll still have that awareness and they'll still have that want to see. So it goes back to the old um, uh, golden rule of marketing. You build everything we do in public relations and marketing and building awareness is to build awareness of the opening day. Mm. Build awareness of the day when the film will be available to you. Or how can I watch this film? I've heard so mm -hmm. much good thing, so many good things about this film. When can I see it? I want to see it. I want to tell my friends to see it. Yeah. And there's lastly a prestige of recommending films to your friends and then having them come back and say, wow, that's such a great film. Thank you for recommending it. That's a point of prestige and social interaction, which is very invigorating for everyone. Even if they say, you were full of it, and I don't like that film. I didn't like that film at all. What were you thinking? Yeah, you know? yeah, but at least it's like it's sparking the conversation, right? Right. Looking to the future, where would you like to see the world of cinema go? Um, well, this year at Cannes, for instance, there were many people coming to Cannes, first time ever, hoping to find new business, to start up new business. But it's, if you come to the festival to start up new business, you're asking people to take time during the festival to focus on new prospects, and that's not the time and place. There's 365 days a year. The 10 days of the Cannes Festival, many people are focused on things they're already engaged in talking about. And you can pitch new business any time of the year. So I think the most important thing that we can do is recognize that festivals are incubators uh, for things that have already taken root, who are already going to hatch, and their festivals are can nurture work that's being developed or has been finished. And festivals are places where people can focus on scripts that they've already agreed to read and they can talk about. Mm. Analysis, polish up this idea, who's going to play it, who's going to direct it. All these things are playing in the incubator of the market, for instance, mm. where I spent 100% of my time. I saw no films at Cannes this year because 100% of my time was talking to people about projects, even... Um, festival projects, but also production projects that had to do with future, uh, uh, future projects in the works. And I think that's the most important work that we can do at festivals and outside of festivals. Yeah. And people don't understand that that's the process, that people imagine you can go to Cannes, shake hands, and make a film. Yeah. Or that <laughs> yeah. uh, one person said at Amazon said, uh, you give Woody Allen a check and wait for the film. Uh, so people imagine that that's the model, but it's not. It's the, the model of making a film is collaborating, consulting, checking in with, finding the opinion, harmonizing the views, aligning the planets among six or eight different partners sometimes, and then hoping that all the uh, variables, the time, the weather, the budget, uh, remain, uh, can keep the boat afloat. Mm. And uh, that work is something that has been the core business of the industry, but under the pace of the Cannes Festival in recent years, and other festivals, mm -hmm. the market begins on Thursday and ends on Monday because of the, business, the protocol of half-hour meetings and the protocol of only doing business with people you already know and people you're already dealing with and you just want to see how far we move the, chess, the pieces on the board, uh, one or two moves, and then we're finished with our meeting. And there's no time for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Um, we used to have, as I mentioned, two-hour lunches at Cannes every day, and you'd be able to get into all sorts of things peripheral to the work at hand. But those things peripheral are sometimes vital. Uh, the Japanese proverb, you really learn to swim in the winter and you really learn to ski in the summer, <laughs> is quite appropriate to our industry, and people don't recognize that the creative yeah. process is not the business of a razzle-dazzle show. It's also the business of quiet conversation and introspection and maybe heart-to-heart -heart, uh, communications, which mm. are not necessarily part of the space that we imagine festivals are famous for, mm. even though they are. 
Mm. And final question, and tying it back to the heart and the emotional core, and being here in Locarno, looking to the future, where do you see the Locarno Film Festival, or where would you like to see it go when it's 100 years old? Well, it, when it's 100 years old, in two more years, I, I would guess, the Grand Hotel will be opened again, <laughs> and we'll have a beehive again. So it's almost <laughs> going back to its full circle, then? I imagine, because the, what I miss most about the Grand Hotel is that it was a beehive. And when people come out of a film and say, wow, I just saw the Joachim Euro, uh, uh, Trier film, I, I said, wow, what a great film. Whatever you see, you should be able to talk to someone who will receive the signal and maybe be able to see it or receive the signal and say, yes, I saw it yesterday. Wasn't it good? Uh, also, the, 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 the next point is that there are more hotels opening up in, in Locarno. There was a period when I started, even in 2011, when we were a short supply of hotels in the immediate vicinity of Locarno because many of them had been turned into timeshares. Well, many of them going back to hotels and Airbnbs, so we have more people of the festival lodging nearer, nearer the center than we did 10 years ago. And I think it's a good sign that we have a city that's reanimating its central core because if you have a big, uh, big campus with just diverse screening rooms and maybe a cafe, the Curacao, there are lots of cafes, certainly, but mm -hmm. the idea of running into festival people every step of the way through the time, as if you're on a cruise ship, should be revived. And the best yeah. way to do that is to have a, a central hotel like the Grand Hotel. Lucy Spot, thank you so much. There's uh, only one thing left to do. Let's roll your closing credits. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? I think it's Jean Renoir's Regle du Jeu, mm. The Rules of the Game, because it's an upstairs, downstairs social comedy based on Chateaubriand, classic French social comedies about social class, standing, stratification of society, harmony and disharmony in society, even inside social circles. And it's also about public relations. It's about spin doctors, inside, outside. There's a tragedy at the end where a gamekeeper shoots an intruder who's actually his wife's lover, and they call it an accident. And an accident. two older gentlemen leaving say, strange new meaning of the use of the word accident, isn't it? <laughs> if you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself and your friends, what movie would you like to watch there and why? Mm. Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now would be big and big and explosive for the screen, and at the same time intimate and introspective. You're directing a movie about your life. What would the opening and closing scenes look like? I would open at the beach at Coney Island, <laughs> where my, my, my cousin Dolores was dating a lifeguard, and we were having a great time rollicking in the water, uh, and I would close it at the, at the last scene of my life. <laughs> Where will my life end? <laughs> You're the director. <laughs> you, my you life us. will end <laughs> as I, I slip and fall out, off of Mount Servin in, in, <laughs> near Geneva. Okay. Great. If you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be, and who would you give it to? I would give an award for people who've done hard work and have never been recognized. And I would find people who've never won an award before, uh, as Ingmar Bergman had been named with Cannes for having never, never won a prize for Cannes. So I'd find the non-award award. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? That film festivals will maintain their humanity because they become buzzing beehives of non-substantive communications. Is today's art shaping society as it should? In some cases, yes. I think art shapes society insofar as people can recognize their humanity or their lives in the pictures depicted or in the situations depicted. Mm -hmm. And many films are invented 
what can cinema do to improve people's lives? Uh, there was a man who was living in Bombay and went to his village where there was only one little square crossroads and people would sit under the tree in that square and sit and drink and complain at all times, day and night. And he started a film club with a generator and a small flat screen and people would come, 20, 30 people, then it was a weekly event and soon he discovered there were sewing classes and a couple of marriages and within a year of that club having been formed, no one ever went back to that square to sit and drink and complain. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? Communications, reminding people that they're not alone and that we all have similar responses to similar stimuli. Um, seeing a story uh, in any language, in any culture, can still have the same emotional resonance that it had at the home and internationally. And last but not least, as the film festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? No. I'm a, I'm a slave of duty. <laughs> I've decided many years ago to devote my life to humanity, and so I'm moving on that track, and inside that track I find great joy, but that's not freedom. It's, it's duty. Thank you for listening to Future Spectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Spectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.